Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 90, the 90th Psalm. There are 150 songs in the hymnal of Israel. 116 of these have headings or titles. And so as you get to Psalm 90, you'll find the title or the heading of this psalm, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And we'll take for that, for our title of the sermon this morning, the title of the psalm, that heading title. Some say those headings are part of the inspired scriptures, that they are as inspired as the rest of the Word of God. Others say that they were added later and don't carry the same authority and inspiration. Consequently, many have tried to discredit Psalm 90 of the fact that Moses was the author. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't believe that Moses uh, is not the author here. Spurgeon says, The condition of Israel in the wilderness is so preeminently illustrative of each verse, and the turns, expressions, and words are so similar in many in the Pentateuch that the difficulties suggested are to our mind light as air in comparison with the internal evidence in favor of its mosaic origin. And so as Moses would be the author of this psalm, that would make make this psalm the oldest psalm dating back to the wilderness wanderings from 1440 to 1400 BC. It amazes me that we can open a book and read the words of a prayer that took place almost 3,500 years ago and still find help as we pray. And the reason that we can do that is God has not changed. And neither has man. Man is still frail. Man is still sinful. And so as we go through these verses, we can learn the importance of coming to God as Moses did. In the first two verses, he approaches God with a reverence as he recognizes uh, that God is, is divine in his character and nature. And once he saw who God was, then he saw himself. And there's a stark contrast when we do that, isn't there? You see God for who he is, and then you see yourself for who you are. He was frail. He was weak. He was human, and that's exactly where we need to be when we begin praying. What was the occasion of this prayer? The Bible records several prayers of Moses. I don't know exactly what motivated this prayer. I can imagine that the heartaches and the headaches of leading two and a half million people who were complaining out of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years would give Moses many things to pray about. James Montgomery Boyce suggests that Moses prayed this in the historical setting of Numbers chapter 20. Those events happened 30 years, or 38 years after they had spent, sent the 12 uh, spies into Canaan, and 40 years after they had left Egypt. Numbers 20 records the death of Moses' sister Miriam and his brother Aaron as well as the sin of Moses striking the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. So it may be after the 40 years of watching an entire generation perish in the wilderness that caused Moses to pray this prayer. And and Psalm 90 is filled with references to the brevity of life, the, the frailty of man. Or it may be, seeing his older brother and sister die, He was moved to pray these words, but he was moved to pray, and it gives us an example of how we should pray. First point this morning, taken from verses 1 and 2, his prayer starts with a recognition of God's character. 
Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, from even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Notice, first of all, the attribute of God's kindness. Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Did you realize that God wants us to dwell with him? He designed man to be in his presence. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with man and talked with him. It was sin that separated that, that fellowship that we had with God. So God gave Moses instructions to build the tabernacle, which was also called the Tent of Meeting. And in that tabernacle, God again dwelled with man. When Jesus came to earth, he was called Emmanuel, Matthew quoting Isaiah 7.14, God with us. There again, the dwelling of God with man. And now he indwells believers. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And as we think about what lies before every believer in heaven, and read Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a great voice, said John, out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God designed for us to dwell with him. Notice, it was God who protected the children of Israel. The word for dwelling place is translated with the word refuge in Deuteronomy 32.7. The eternal God is thy refuge, thy dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So not only does he dwell with us, that dwelling and the abiding with us implies that he is going to protect us. Moses didn't look around to all the men of Israel, the 600,000 that came out of Egypt, and say, and say, we're safe because of your strength. He said, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place, our refuge in all generations. God is the one who protected them through that cloudy pillar that stood between them and the Egyptian army when they encamped at the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, verses 19 and 20, we see that. And in verse 20, it came the, the cloud that went before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to them, that is Egypt, but it gave light to these, or by night to these, that is Israel, so that one came not near the other all the night. What a, what a realization of God's protection. And then it was God who provided for their needs. He provided them manna from heaven, water from the rock. He kept their sandals and their clothing from wearing out. A wonderful verse in Nehemiah 9.20 that's claimed by many young families as they struggle to make ends meet with buying clothes. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. He provided everything that they needed. And he, he does so for us today. Where Jesus said in Matthew 6, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
God has not changed. He is still kind. He is still protective of his children. He still provides for us. God is not only kind, he's eternal. He existed before creation, before the mountains were brought forth. That is his creation. Before they were created, of course, he was the creator. So he existed from eternity past. He's eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, both ends of the spectrum, he continues forever. Thou art God. He always is. Go a million years into the future, and the statement is still true. Thou art God. Go a million years into the past, eternity past, and you can still say, Thou art God. It's in the present tense. Whenever you say it, he is God. He's eternal. God is powerful. He formed the earth and the world, verse 2. Moses uses two words that are very close in meaning here. The earth would be the ground, the land, the part of the earth that we would call firm, something you can stand on. The world is a, is a word that indicates something with moisture. And so the places where the land is inhabitable, implying that those inhabitants are what he created as well. He created the earth, he created everything on it. Moses started his prayer by acknowledging the character of God. That's the way we need to start our prayers as well. We saw this when we studied the Lord's pattern for prayer in Matthew 6. Jesus said, after this manner, pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He started with the recognition of, of who God is. Prayer starts that way. Don't just rush into your request. I know sometimes when we're, when we're moving and, and driving and we, we have a, a burden on our heart, we, we just pray that to God. But take the time when you can. Stop and consider that the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Humble yourself. Remove your shoes. Bow your head in reverence. Pause and remember that you have a hearing with the God of creation because of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Secondly, notice his prayer starts with a recognition of God's character. His prayer acknowledges the extreme frailty of man, verses 3 through 6. Let's read uh, those. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Man is in the constant process of dying. It's the result of Adam's sin. Genesis 2.17, he said, In the day that thou eatest of that fruit, thou shalt surely die. And it's in, interesting, in the Hebrew it's dying, thou shalt die. You will, you will begin dying on the day that you eat of that, and you will continue that process. The phrase, thou turnest man to destruction, the word destruction there is powder. It tells us that God is the one who says, when our life is over. And sayest, return, ye children of men. God is the one who determines when it's time to return to the dust of the ground from which we're created. We're not in charge of how long we live. We might try, we might exercise and eat correctly, 
But God is the one who determines the length of our days. David said in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in thy hand. And as we go through this, you say, well, I don't like thinking about how short my life is. That's true. None of us do, but we need to. In verses 4 through 6, there are five similes that illustrate how short life is. You know, even man's longest lifespan is short. You think about 969 years of Methuselah. But we get in Genesis 3.27, when it tells us that he lived that long, it still ends with the same words, and he died. And you ask Methuselah, and you say, well, that was short. That wasn't long at all. So we have these similes. A simile is a figure of speech where two unlike things are placed together and connected with the words like or as. And so there's several. There are five here, and then there's another later. But the first, life is as yesterday. He's explaining how short it is. Yesterday is already gone. If he said life is as 24-hour day, you might say, well, I'll have that tomorrow still to look forward to. But this one is yesterday. And he emphasizes it also with that phrase, when it is past, it's already gone. That's how short life is. It was yesterday. You don't have it today. Life is as a watch in the night, secondly. A watch is just a portion of the night. The guard takes his place and stands there for probably about four hours. And then he's done with his watch. Life is as a flood. It carries men away. It's amazing to watch videos of flooding where... Everything is swept away. And you watch and you see houses crumble into a river of water and mud and it slides down the mountainside and trees and cars. And think of the human life as well. It's suddenly gone. Life is as a sleep. I don't know about you, but I go to bed tired. And and I, I, I roll over and I think, boy, I've got the whole night to sleep. This is wonderful. And I take one more look at the alarm clock, and it's 6 o'clock in the morning already. Do you ever do that? I mean, it's gone. You slept it away. Life is like that. Life is like grass. It grows in the morning. Afternoon, it's cut down and fades. And the climate of the Near East, rains during the night will cause grass to spring up like a carpet on the hills. But the hot sun will scorch it, and it will be killed the same day. Moses says life is just that short. It's estimated that by the time you reach 70 years of age, you have slept 23 years, worked 16 years, spent eight years watching TV, spent six years eating, six years traveling, relaxed for four and a half years, been sick for four years, spent two years getting dressed, and a half year in church. Life is short. Man is a sinner, and God is just. We see that in verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 speaks of God's righteous anger at sin. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. Consumed and troubled by the fact that God is not happy with man's sin. In fact, the Bible is very clear that he is angry with sin. Most people don't want to hear that God is angry. And you often will hear the question, how can a loving God send his creation to an eternal destruction? How can he destroy his creation? 
There's a great answer to that question found in Matthew 25, 41. And that is the fact that God never intended hell for people. Matthew 25, 41, and the, he shall say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why God created this eternal place of torment. In fact, in order to go to that place of eternal fire, man has to refuse the grace of God that was demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross. He has to deliberately push aside and reject that redemptive work of Christ to get to hell. But if you refuse that work on the cross, you refuse his love, you turn away from him, you will face his anger. Sin must be punished. You'll either accept his punishment for your sins or say, I'll take that punishment on myself. God knows everything about us. Verse 8, thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Our iniquities are all laid out before him. They're out in the open. And he looks at them all and considers them. Our secret sins are in the light of his countenance. That is, his, his radiant face illuminates everything that we think is hidden in our lives. There's no hiding them. There's no excusing them. There's no way of looking at them and trying to persuade God that they're really not all that bad compared with everyone else. He knows everything about me. Our days are numbered, verses 9 and 10. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Here's yet another simile of how short life is. It's the sixth in the chapter, as a tale that is told. You ever go into your children's bedroom or remember those days when you were telling them a bedtime story and they were wide awake and as you brought that story to a close, you looked over and they still wide awake. And they say, don't stop. Keep telling the story. They're enjoying the attention. And you say, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> now go to sleep. That's the end. There's no more story left. And Moses says, that's, that's what our life is. It's a story. It's over too soon. A specific figure is given here in verse 10. 70 years. 80 by reason of strength. You read the United States uh, Life expectancy for men, 73 and a half years. For women, 79.3 years. I remember taking a yardstick. I learned this from someone else. And dividing that yardstick up into the half-inch segments, each segment representing a year of your life, 72 in all. And by the time you're 24 years old, one foot of that yardstick is gone. And at 48, two-thirds are gone. And I remember breaking off that yardstick and someone in, in the church here saying, stop right there. <laughs> they didn't want that representation of how short life was to, to, to be brought home. But we need to know. And we were told why as the prayer concludes, or as the, as the psalm concludes, but the end is explained. The duration of our life is hard. The strength is labor and sorrow. At best, man's life is full of trials, 
sorrows, hardships. Say amen to that. (laughs) For the lost man, though, you think about that. And you can say to him, this is as good as your life will ever be as far as eternity goes. This is as good as it gets. For the saved person, you can look at them and say, this is as bad as it will ever be. That's a wonderful hope. The duration of life is our hard. The end of, of life is soon. It is soon cut off. The end of life is certain. We fly away. Our eternal soul departs from the mortal body to be reunited at the resurrection. In verse 11, Moses ends this section the same way he started it in verse 7. God is angry with sin. He's just. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. According to thy fear is actually the fear of thee. According to the fear that man has of God, so is thy wrath. You weigh out the fear of man on a scale. And God's wrath is commensurate with that fear. Man's fear is, is, of God is legitimate. Now verses 12 through 17. His prayer concludes with three petitions. Because of the character and nature of God, and in light of the frail and sinful nature of man, Moses concludes with these three requests. It's interesting, as I look at this, I see words like, Verse 13, thy servants. Verse 16, thy servants and their children. He's not praying for himself. In fact, you see the the personal pronouns that he uses, us, our, we. He is interceding for Israel like he often does throughout all of the wanderings. And so the first request, and I'll I'll word these as, as we would understand them. First, Lord, Help us make every day count. I don't want to waste any of my time on this earth. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Moses comes recognizing that God is the one who is the teacher here. He's called upon for this instruction. There there are many people in our world who would claim, I know how you should live your life. I know what's most important. Let's ask the Lord to teach us. He's the only one who can teach us how we ought to live. The lesson, to number our days. The idea, again, is to live every day as if it were your last. Is there anything you need to make right with God? You say, well, I'll just put it off. Eventually, I'll get around to being right with God, and then I'll live my days for him. Do it now. Is there anything you need to reconcile with someone else? And again, you say, well, I'll just wait. I'll give it time. Do it now. Do it today. Is there anyone you need to tell about Christ and his love for them? Don't wait. Do it when God gives you the opportunity. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Of all the mathematical disciplines, this is the hardest, to number our days. We count everything else, but we do not seem able to use our days rightly and with wisdom. The application, the way to make every day count is to apply our hearts unto wisdom. Isn't it wonderful to find out as we looked at James 
who said that wisdom is a commodity that God gives freely to everyone who will ask him for it. To apply your hearts unto wisdom. Ask God how he wants you to spend today. Live every day as if it were your last. The second request, not only, Lord, um, help us make every day count, he says, Lord, help us to experience your forgiveness. Verses 13 through 15. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee according, uh, concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. He asked God to return. Now God doesn't, hasn't moved. He's unchanging. He's immutable. But our sins have blocked the fellowship with God. And Moses is asking God to restore the fellowship that Israel once had with him. And the words how long express that Moses wanted this, this prayer answered as soon as possible. Don't delay any longer. Return. He asks God to repent. Again, not something that God does. He doesn't change. Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. The Israelites here are called God's servants. In spite of their sin, in spite of their unbelief, in spite of their complaining. And Moses, as he often did, is asking God to give them another opportunity. That's what that, that idea of, of let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Give them another opportunity. Help them to make things right with you. This is all part of that helping us to experience your forgiveness. And then he prayed that God's mercy would be granted in verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God's mercy is the only thing that will ever satisfy. Satisfy us early with thy mercy. Early. Don't wait any longer. I need it now. God's mercy is the only thing that will bring joy and gladness in our lives. That we may rejoice and be glad. All our days, his mercy brings lasting joy. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting or vanishing. It'll counterbalance all the sorrow and afflictions that sin brought. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. For the Israelites, it was the years in the wilderness. For us, maybe the years that we've lived without Christ. And so he's praying for God's mercy to satisfy them. Third request, Lord, help us to be a testimony of your grace, a witness to others of what you've done in our lives, a manifestation of how great you are in your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace and love. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Notice he says, let thy work appear. When you pray for other people to see what great grace God has, pray that they'll not see you, but see him. He's the only one who can change a life. 
And so let thy work be evident. Let thy glory, let it appear unto thy children. That's speaking of the next generation. Our prayer should be that our children and that our grandchildren will see his glory in our lives. And let or allow the beauty of the Lord our God to be upon us. Word for beauty here, some people have used the word favor. It's his grace. It's his splendor. Do people see that when they look at your life? That God has just totally consumed you. And he's hidden all of your faults and your flaws. And they see his great grace. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. And when you're living for Christ, others will recognize that grace in your life. So we want to see evidence of his work of his glory, and of his grace in our lives. In these three requests, Lord, help us to make every day count. That's what Moses was praying for Israel. That should be our prayer, each one of us today. I want every day to count for God. I don't want to waste my time. I want to invest it for eternity. Whatever's left, I want every day to be lived for him. Lord, help us to experience your forgiveness. That is, that I would be walking in a relationship with Christ that is is clean. And I can come without any thoughts of regret or with remorse of something that's still hidden in my life. Help me to experience your forgiveness. And I pray that I'll be a testimony of your grace. That your work, your glory, your beauty would be evident in my life. Let's bow our heads. Let me ask a few questions before we end to help us to respond to this text. Maybe you're here and you don't know that God's forgiven you of your sins. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Are you ready to do that today? Don't put it off. Life is short. Trust him now. Accept his payment for your sins by trusting him as your savior. We're going to sing in a few moments. And if you'll come forward, we'll let someone take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven, that your sins are forgiven. A question now for Christians. In light of who God is and in light of who you are, will you pray for God to teach you to make the most of your days, to experience his forgiveness, and to be manifesting his grace every day of your life? Father in heaven, we pray that you'll have your way in our hearts and in our lives, whether it's a public profession of faith in you or a decision that we make before you in private. I pray that there will be a change, that the, that the word of God will make a change in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.